But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn to Psalm chapter 11. Now, while I was pastoring in Loxley, and no, that's not in Scotland. I'm just teasing. Y'all know that. But uh, when I was pastoring in Loxley, um, it was common when I would finish the book, we finished Galatians last week, that I would spend four weeks in the Psalter. And it's just typically how I did. So we're going to spend four weeks this month in the Psalter. And um, this week we're simply doing uh, perhaps one of my favorite psalms. But uh, in the next three weeks we'll do the cross, the crook, and the crown of Psalm 22, 23, and 24. But if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 11, I'll say a few words. Often uh, in America, uh, we, we get perplexed by suffering. We're a very uh, oriented culture towards comfort. And there is a misconception among Christians and many good-meaning but all ending badly that if you believe in Jesus, your Christian life is going to be easy and comfortable. We have many man-made doctrines and systems in American Christianity that are driven at the very point of saying that the Christian is actually meant to be comfortable. People have end-time views that say they're all, it's actually meant to where you don't have any suffering. People have views in this world that say the totality of everything is your health, your wealth, and your prosperity. And it simply doesn't match with your Bible. When you open your Psalter, we view men whose hearts are rent because they are living in between these two ages in, in a present evil age and in the age to come, and they simply ask the question, how do I reconcile these things? That's why when you're in sorrow, the Psalter seems to be your greatest comfort. And it... And Truly, it's not only the Psalter, but a great deal of the hymns, the hymn we just sang. It is well with my soul. Right? Or a hymn such as, When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. As Christians, we will suffer. Jesus tells you this. If you had... The physical pains of the fall, Genesis 3, and all the things that follow, sickness and decay and trouble in the family, it will be even greater when you become a Christian. To become a Christian, you not only have your body falling apart, the world living in sin, but then you have the devil as your enemy. Before you are his family. But when you become a Christian, you become his enemy. Which is why Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And the question often becomes is, well, what ought, how ought we to respond? What ought we to do in suffering? And so if, I don't know my bulletin went. Oh, there it is. Uh, you have your bulletin, you'll have the outline there. But I'm going to pray and, um, and then we'll read Psalm 11 and we'll jump in. But let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, this is your word every word breathed from you. And we do pray, come and give us ears to hear. Come and give us eyes to see. And Lord, we do pray that you would come 
and change us, that we might live in this world more faithfully as sojourners for our Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 11. The subscript says, To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. But His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May write truths on our hearts. Uh, Today I have a proposition and two points. The proposition and points which are in your bulletin. In distress, what should the righteous do? Verses 1 through 3, trust the Lord. And verses 4 through 7, confess the faith. In distress, what should the righteous do? Trust the Lord and confess the faith. See how this psalm opens in the subscript. In distress, what should the righteous do? Trust the Lord. That subscript which says, to the choir master of David. The psalm begins with this time in Habakkuk. And what it simply means is that in the intent of the psalm, it was meant to be sung. Now, all of your psalter is to be sung. You know that on Sunday morning, don't you? All the psalter is for singing. But when David penned the psalm, he meant for you to sing it. And it is peculiar how songs have been grounding for believers. And really all of, all of creation, if you think. If you go back in to the beginning of creation, Job 38, verse 7, right? The sons of God sing for joy. When, when, when God begins to create the world. Or if you go into Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, the Lord gives Adam a gift of his wife. And what does he do? He writes song, right? Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. He sings. Or if you go into Exodus 15 and God's people having been delivered from uh, their captors, what do they do? They sing. One of the best things, and, and, the, and the Puritans really did know this, they always ended their, uh, their family worship with song. Why? Because songs remain with you. And when you put something in song, it roots itself in your heart. Right? You perhaps remember many songs and you can hear them 20 years later and you're like, I can sing this song. Because it's rooted in you. And David wants you to sing the song. To know the psalm in your inner man. Now, unlike other psalms, this psalm has no particular setting that it sets. It's not a prayer. This psalm is a confession. And it is David confessing 
the truth in the midst of a world pushing against him. And see how he begins his confession, the beginning of verse 1. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. In the midst of dark circumstances which we're about to see, David begins to recount his hope to himself. But not only to himself, but to those who are telling him to run away. But notice how he does. He says, in the Lord. Notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The one who rescued God's people, the the Lord himself, the divine name, Exodus 3, who rescued God's people out of Egypt and set them in the land. uh, David is saying, it is in him, the redeemer of Israel, I find refuge, a shelter, a safety. Protection, security, asylum. I'm finding refuge in the Lord, which begs the question that he asks, how can you say to my soul? Notice what David immediately does. He has a high view of the sovereignty and the kingship of God. If I am taking refuge in the Lord, how can you tell me to flee? If he is my hope and stay, how can you tell me to run from him and to find security in something else? Notice the counsel of his his counselors. They say, and notice, actually, it's it's important to know because unless you have a King James in front of you or the Hebrew in front of you, you probably perhaps can't see it. How can you, plural, Multiple people speaking to him. Say to my soul. These multiple people are able to speak to the soul of the psalmist. He does not say simply, you say to me. These are people who can speak to the inner man of the psalmist. And what do they counsel him in the midst of distress? Flee. Flee like a bird. Flee like a bird to your mountain. What do birds do when sounds happen? Scatter. Scatter away, David. Why why, why are they telling him to scatter? Verse 2, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. These persons are telling David counsel that says, we know you take refuge in the Lord. But can the Lord really deliver you? Look at your circumstances, David. The wicked have already bent their bow. The arrow is already fastened on the string. If you do not fly now, you are sure to be got as the fowler with the bird. But you notice a few things about this particular circumstance. First, you notice they're giving him faulty counsel, right? They're they're denying the the sovereign emporium of the Lord, his, his, his right to rule and overrule in all of creation. They're denying that David is taking refuge in him. And notice there's two people in this altar, really. It begins, right, the blessed man who does this and, and, and the wicked, right? 
And the wicked has a portion, and the blessed have, have a portion, Psalm 1 and 2. And here we see that the wicked is set against the righteous and they are, and they are coming to destroy the righteous. And, and here even the righteous' friends are telling him to run away. Now, this is not the first time this has happened in the, in the Bible, right? Job's friends, bad counselors, right? Or um, you can go to Peter, Matthew 16. Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. And what does Peter say? Peter uh, turned him aside. uh, He says, it'll never be to you, Lord. Matthew 16, verse 22 and 23. This will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You're a terrible counselor. It is important to know in a world of lies that even those who are close to you can believe lies and they may speak those into your soul. It is important for you and I to be grounded in the authority of the Scripture, to know that we must test all things, especially in distress, because your experience will seek to form your understanding of the world around you. It will seek to inform how you understand the Word itself. But we must let the Word interpret our experience and our experience interpret the Word. And here his friends are telling him, David, your circumstances are terrible. The Lord can't help you. And so what does David do? They say... If the foundations, verse 3, are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You must run away because the foundations, David, are crumbling beneath you. So flight is your only hope. And you can imagine, this is David writing the psalm. David, the one who was given the promise of 1 Samuel 16, and that he would rule over Israel all the while, perhaps in Israel, there are, if you're really drawing and making the match to match for experiential, perhaps this is during the point of Saul's uh, uh, pursuing of David. Because apparently, wickedness prospers in the highest of places, the upright are in danger. It's not only David. It is to shoot in dark at the upright in heart. It is all righteous who are in danger by these men's accounts. And the foundations of the righteous themselves is under assault. It's kind of a side note. But they say, David, the foundations are being destroyed. Run away. And David surely was counseling himself in his soul and saying, the Lord has made promises and he will not abandon them. So what becomes of our faith when the foundations disappear? Well, the the question itself is faulty, isn't it? Can the foundations of our faith ever disappear? The foundations of our faith are as solid as the Lord Himself because He is our foundation. Christ, the sure cornerstone. 
And notice what David responds with. Ultimately, it's worthy of note that this is David who is being put under pressure by his friends, who is trusting God even when his friends and family are telling him to forsake him, perhaps his family. It's pointing to a greater David. A greater David who would have his friends and his family say, run away. Come down off that cross. Don't suffer under this distress any longer. Run, they told Jesus. Come down from that cross and we'll believe you. They told the greater David that he would die. But just as this David, the greater David, Jesus would trust God despite the worst of evil and evil seemingly prevailing, but by his death he would destroy evil's foundation. But I want you to see what David does. So in distress, what should the righteous do? They should trust the Lord. Take refuge in the Lord. When, when your friends give you terrible counsel, go to his word and take refuge. But what should the righteous do? Secondly, they should confess the faith and see what David does in verse 4. And this is simply lovely. He says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. Right after David's friends tell him to flee because the foundations are destroyed, David responds with a confession of the surety of his foundation. He says, the Lord is my refuge. Now let me tell you about the Lord. Where is the Lord? Verse 4, he is in his holy temple. Notice there's two things said about the Lord in verse 4. He's in his holy temple and his throne is in heaven. One is the image of a priest, and the other one's the image of a king. One is an advocate, one is a defender. And peculiarly, the Lord is in His holy temple, meaning He is what? He is worthy of all worship, laud, and honor. And if He is remaining in His holy temple, I have no duress. My salvation is secure. My righteousness with God is unmoved because He stands for me. And David rests himself upon both the glory of God, which is worthy of all suffering, and then he rests himself upon the priesthood of the Lord, which defends him against all evil. But he does not stop there. They say the foundations are destroyed, and he begins to continue to describe these foundations, and he says, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Notice David's defender. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This is Revelation 1.5, kind of language, that Jesus is the king over all the kings of the earth. It is a throne that is in heaven, meaning it's a throne that is above every throne. There's not a throne on earth that can touch the throne of God in heaven. And it does not suggest distance. It is not saying that God is distant from you. It is saying He has dominion over you. 
and saying that all the things that David is experiencing in this moment, he says, my foundation tells me that God is overruling and managing even my suffering. And I can trust Him. I have a refuge. Because I have a priest. And I have a refuge because I have a defender. And He is not far from me. He is ruling me. Notice David confessing his faith. Elementary, elementary principles of the faith bringing great encouragement to a distressed soul. Where do you find comfort? When all around your soul gives way. Where do you find comfort? Is it not in verse 4 of Psalm 11? That you have a priest who is in heaven. That you have a king whose throne is overruling every distress of your life. Many people would think that if the Lord's in heaven, well, that doesn't help me. But it is, in fact, your greatest comfort. If you go into the book of Revelation, the word for throne occurs 47 times. It opens with John, the revelator, being imprisoned at Patmos. And being in prison on an island, he begins to describe a throne. And where did he find comfort in his imprisonment? He found comfort and he sent the comfort to the churches that the Lord Jesus reigns. Revelation 4 itself has the word for throne occurring 14 times. What is Daniel? The man who is cast out of Israel in Daniel chapter 7, who is a sojourner and a pilgrim in the way. Where does he find comfort? Daniel chapter 7. What does he see? A throne. Where the Son of Man goes to the Almighty and receives the scroll. Right? He sits at the hand of the Almighty. It is in the throne that the Christian finds comfort. Do not be fooled. It is a false claim when the wicked say they rule. The Lord reigns. Psalm says, let the nations rejoice. What are those things at present which concern you? Whatever it is, surely you can say with David, the Lord is my refuge. What can man do to me? David doesn't stop there although I am running out of time. But David doesn't stop there. I can finish quickly. He continues to tell us that not only is the Lord interceding, not only is the Lord defending, but the Lord is also upholding justice. See what he says. His eyes, end of verse 4, see. Isn't that a comfort? You have a great shepherd, a good shepherd, and a chief shepherd who sees you. Isn't that a comfort for the Christian? And he says, his eyelids test the children of man. And he begins to put two categories out for the world. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I want you to say peculiarly that justice will be upheld. This is Psalm 73. That when you do not understand why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, the psalmist comes back and back again to say, 
that time will interpret all things. And it is a matter of very short time until the Lord vindicates justice and righteousness is prospering and wickedness leads to perishing. Peculiarly draw you to see two things at the end of the psalm. Verse 6. He says, Get the language of the wicked. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Notice this is the inheritance of the wicked, right? Their cup, their portion. But the language itself should be drawing something into your mind. It's already happened in your Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 19. Notice these are the exact verbiage for what happens in Genesis 19, 24. Let him reign, right? What does he reign? Fire and sulfur. The image is that the wicked receive the inheritance of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the reigning of what happened in judgment. When the Lord said, let me go down and see if there be any righteous. And with none found and all righteous rescued, He reigns. R-A-I-N-S. He reigns terrifying portions. It is both a comfort to the Christian. We love that God is just. And at the same time, we praise God that His justice does not fall upon us. But His justice has fallen upon our loving covenant mediator, the Lord Jesus. And so we warn men to flee the portion of the wicked. And we tell them of the portion of the righteous in verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, and He loves righteous deeds. Here's their portion. The upright shall behold His face. Christian, it is a matter of very short time for you until you see Him. And when you see Him, Revelation 22 Verse 4, you will behold his, his face. Brothers, we have a great portion. Jesus said, this is eternal life. That you know God and His Son whom He has sent. So brothers, in distress, what should the righteous do? In distress, the righteous should trust the Lord and they should confess their faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God. We do pray that You would help us to trust You and You would help us to confess the faith that was once for all delivered to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.